Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. I'm going to ask you to do something here for this. I'm going to ask you if you'd stand for the reading of this passage of Scripture before we begin today. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Father, I pray that you'd anoint the reading of your word and, um, and our conversation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We are in a somewhat lengthy series, excuse me, entitled The Challenge of a Biblical Worldview. Um, the studies have shown that, that around 50-some percent or so of Americans identify as Christian, <coughs> excuse me, but only 6% have a biblical worldview. Only 6% have a perspective of life, reality, identity, everything else based upon the Bible. Uh, and so there's a certain percentage, for example, that believes in reincarnation, which is not biblical. There's a segment that would not believe the Bible is the Word of God, um, which it is. Um, they'd have a different perspective of Jesus, of everything. So what we're trying to do is walk this through and take those things which are really of a biblical perspective, not just a disputable issue within Christianity, but those things that are directly biblical. <coughs> Excuse me, we began last week... Um, this segment of three uh, with what does it mean to be human. And in that, we had the conversation of, uh, of transgender and, and gender fluidity, etc. The issue in that conversation, even as it is now, is not about trans people. As we said, all individuals, all human beings, in fact, what it means to be a human being is to be created in the image of God which means you have intrinsic value no matter who you are. And you're worthy of respect, and there's something that should be um, um, acknowledged in that. Uh, But the real question of what does it mean to be a human in our society today is this. Are we individuals created, which means there is a creator who has a purpose and a design for us, and knows what is best for us, or are we um, randomly evolved people, in which case there is no obligation we have to anyone. I can choose whatever gender, identity, um, actions, whatever I want, and it doesn't matter how it relates to anyone else even. From a biblical worldview, and this passage of Scripture highlights that, we are created beings. We have someone who knows us, loves us, and having created us knows what is best for us. And in this one particularly, it's specifically identified um, male and female. 
Now, you need to be aware there are those targeting the church. This has been going on for the last 20 plus years at least. And you'll find all sorts of things that are trying to use scripture targeting Christians to not have a biblical worldview. One of those takes this passage of scripture and others like it in Genesis, <coughs> excuse me, and would say, well, yes, the whole element of Genesis is binary light and dark and male and female and birds of the air and, and fish of the sea. But there's a spectrum between that, isn't there? You know, there's, there's birds in the air, but then there's penguins that are really neither quite one or the other, isn't it? And, and there's dusk and sunset, and there's, there's sand and beaches between the sea, and therefore with men and women, isn't there a spectrum which is ridiculous and wrong? Especially because it spells out specifically with men and women that it is a male and it is a female. There's no movement in between that, and they are correct. It's a binary all the way through. The word gender uh, was a linguistic term. It didn't even appear in medical literature until the 1950s and 60s. Um, a lot of people use this term gender and they interchange it with sex out of habit. And in fact, the etymology uh, for the word gender contains a gene which connects it to DNA. And so a lot of trans activists are pushing for gender identity to be attached as a legal category um, and redefine the word to mean something other than biological sex. What this ultimately does is desex human beings in regards to law and culture. And as one writer put it, in a society desexed by law, would the state recognize your relationship as husband or wife, mother or father, daughter or son? These are all sexed terms. A system that does not recognize the existence of male and female would be free to ignore the parentage of any child. And it could shift. You could be a legal guardian but as far as anything biological, the state can determine what's in the best interest. And we can say, well, this seems extreme. Um, it doesn't. There are already medical schools in California that are using desex terms. There's a school, in fact, a private school in Manhattan um, that's encouraging students to stop using the terms mom, dad, and parents because, quote, the words make assumptions about kids' home lives. Instead, they're encouraged to use the terms grown-ups, folks, family, or guardians. In a push to include even more, the school wants its students to substitute people for boys and girls. So not boys and girls any longer, but people. And there's a whole lot of other things they do, but here's the interesting thing about it. This private school is Manhattan Grace Church School. It's a Christian school, quote-unquote, part of what's called the Episcopal identity. Um, the terms mother, uh, he, her, all those terms are to be set aside in these neutral terms because otherwise it is... Um, uh, it's, it's, it's discriminatory towards the fluidity of gender. Um, there is something called progressive Christianity. And I say this because you'll see the term progressive in front of the word Christianity and you'll say it's a different branch. I'm not going to go into the detail today, but progressive Christianity is a completely different religion. It is not biblically based. It is not Christianity according to the history of the church. So when you come across that term, don't be fooled uh, in regards to that. When we look into the scripture, we find not only is there this creation of male and female, there's no spectrum in between Adam and Eve, 
Uh, one of the, the studies uh, from the Human Rights Campaign wants to say that Adam was not even gendered when he was created. Um, that makes no sense unless the argument is that somehow he became gendered when there was a female, which would go against, again, the argument of what they're trying to make. But we can pretty much guarantee that Adam was gendered, that it wasn't later that God decided to add some parts or do some work. Okay, um, So he was gendered. We could discuss the whole thing, whether he had a belly button or not. Another conversation, okay, we won't get into. And so you have male and female. It goes further in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Um, one of the arguments of the human rights campaign taking this scripture and trying to argue with Christians is say, well, it seems like there's a lot of things in the Old Testament, though, that don't relate to today, and this guideline probably is one of those. Well, in the Old Testament, there's the civil code, which was for Israel. There's the, um, uh, the ceremonial code that died with the temple. But then there's the moral code, like thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not cross-dress. That's all part of the moral code that still survives to this day. And so as we look at this, there's specific types of garments and the way that they were worn that made a clear distinction between the sexes, even though a lot of their garments in those days were very similar, loose clothing and everything else. But the way they were worn and the type of clothing distinguished between the sexes. And it's a command in this passage against dressing in a manner which deliberately blurs the lines between the sexes. This doesn't doesn't prohibit, incidentally, for those of you with Scottish background, from a guy wearing a kilt. Okay, It's a different conversation there, but it clearly prohibits a man trying to dress like a woman or vice versa. I had a conversation recently with some of our ladies on staff who were wearing jeans at the time that we had this conversation. We were, ah, unclean. Uh, no, those are designed for women. Uh, there's a different styling of clothing, and they weren't trying to cross-dress in any way. I can wear a shirt, a woman can wear a shirt, but there's a difference between a woman's shirt and a man's shirt a lot of times. The whole concept behind this was even beyond the clothing issue. The main thing was to say that the, that the distinction between the sexes is so important that those who blur those lines, as we're doing in our society today, it's something, and I'm just quoting the scripture, is an abomination before God. It's a problem. Now, it's not saying that the individuals are abominations. Again, we need to make differences between people who make whatever choices they're going to make. This is not only a free society, but God believes in free will. People make their choices. And they're to be honored still as individuals, if not for their choices, at least people made in the image of God. But that doesn't mean we need to agree with those choices. And there's also implications in those choices. The question is not whether people will make their choices. The question is what choice is best. And that's for them to determine. But as Christians, we dive into the scripture as the manual for who we are. One writer said human beings are happiest when they can align their feelings with material and moral realities. A rational life is better than one built on self-deception and false hope. But it's easy to lose track of reality when we begin by elevating subjective experience and our personal perspectives to a position of infallible authority. Now, there was a secondary reason as to why um, God challenged them. I'm still having a little ring here that's echoing for me at least in my ear, Um, but probably because my ears are just going weird, okay? Um, The other reason why is because in the pagan cultures that surrounded Israel, And the idolatrous worship that they had there, 
uh, it was common for them, especially in the worship of a goddess called Astarte, which uh, had um, uh, things having to do with, with uh, sex and children and all that type of thing, um, they would, they would cross-dress as part of that worship experience. And so another part of this wasn't just trying to distinguish it, but also trying to separate um, that type of strange worship that was going on from how Israel was supposed to operate and was supposed to function. Now, having laid all that out, today's conversation is about to be a man. All right? To be a man. Question for you first. Uh, before we get started, just to make sure we're okay here, how many of you feel like it's uh, like like it should like it should be cooler in here? You'd prefer it cooler? Just raise your hand. How many of you prefer it cooler? Okay. How many of you prefer it to be warmer? Just curious. Okay. Just an interesting cross section here right now. Um, according to some of the studies that have done, some of the studies are saying that again generalities, and one of the things we need to be careful about are stereotypes. Part of the issues that people lapse into uh, uh, areas of, of confused gender and things of this nature is because by the stereotypical thing, they don't fit that. And so they think maybe that's outside those boundaries. And so when you drive those stereotypes really hardcore, then that can alienate people or confuse people. However, there are some things that we have known from studies. One of those is that men and women view temperature differently. Women, generally speaking, prefer it warmer. Now, when menopause comes, obviously that changes, okay? But generally speaking, men prefer it cooler. I have, uh, um, I, I won't go into details, but I, I have one staff person likes to keep things very, very cool, and I have uh, a couple of female staff members that prefer to keep it very, very warm. And so um, we, we compromise, and we put it whatever I feel comfortable at. Um, <laughs> so there's differences. The way pain is handled is starkly different as well. And guys, you say, yeah, we're much tougher. We can handle the pain. <laughs> You're an idiot. Um, you've never given birth to a bowling ball, okay? I mean, you've never done that. And, and so we know that pain is handled quite a bit differently. Um, psychologist David P. Schmidt has completed the most exhaustive cross-cultural research study on gender and personality. And there was an issue of uh, Psychology Today. This was back in 2017. And uh, um, it goes against the theory, he said, that men and women are basically the same. Schmidt contends that research from neuroscience, genetics, cross-cultural psychology, and other scientific fields is conclusive and overwhelming. There are psychological differences between men and women, psychological differences, and they affect matters as trivial as sensitivity to smelly socks and as significant as susceptibility to disorders such as depression and autism. Meta-analysis of research has found women to be more empathetic rephrase that, empathic, which has to do with that somewhat, but not totally that way. While men are more prone to sexual jealousy, men tend to be better to rotate a dimensional object in their mind and to recognize, say, an upside-down character, whereas women excel at locating an object in a visual field and remembering exactly where Big Ben is on a map of London, he said. Men and women are different from puberty, size, strength, risk-taking, mortality, and obviously reproduction. He laments that just as all the evidence is mounting, that, quote, denial of differences has become rampant. Attempts at respectful and productive conversations about biological sex differences often end with name-calling, genetic determinist, or outright cancellation of events, not to mention the very public firing of a Google software engineer who wrote a memo on the topic. When I was studying psychology as an undergrad, um, we, we dealt with 
uh, a lot of different things, and one of those would be anorexia. And in anorexia, and it's, of course, my bulimia people, the image has, they have a dysphoria with their body image. They believe themselves to be overweight when, in fact, they're not. And so they starve themselves to the point of death. Karen Carpenter, the Carpenter's favorite uh, singer of mine, actually just died and wasted away even though she was this incredibly slender person. And so their mental image is not lining up, and there's a dysphoria between their feelings, their emotions, and their body image. But we do not, and never did in those days, nor do we still tell anorexic people, no, your understanding of your body is absolutely right. You are just way too fat. You need to stop eating entirely, because we know that will kill them. And yet, when someone comes and says, I don't quite connect with my gender in other ways, we accept that without any other challenge today even though we know the studies that have been involved with that. So when we go to the idea of men and women, there's a difference. I want to show you a quick short video that um, subtly presents at least one of those differences and one of the terms that's starting to end up in the trash can of our culture, that of fathers. Not many good news stories begin in such a bad news way. It happened last month here at Southwood High School in Shreveport, Louisiana. Plagued with violence. Over the course of three days, another fight. 23 students arrested for fighting. Massive police response. But strangely, there hasn't been another incident since. Perhaps in part because of this most unusual crisis intervention team. Nobody here has a degree in school counseling. No majors in criminal justice. No, no. Your qualifications are? Well, Dad, we decided the best people who can take care of our kids are who? For us. So Michael Lafitte started Dads on Duty. We're out doing what we do for our babies. A group of about 40 Southwood dads who now hang out at the school in shifts. Let's go. Today, any negative energy that enters the building has to run a gauntlet of good parenting. What's going on, buddy? you moving fast. I like that horse. I immediately felt a form of safety. We stopped fighting. People started going to class. How could that be? You ever heard of a look? A look? Dads have the power to do that? Yes. (laughs) Not many people know it, but yes. (laughs) Let's go, let's go. But it's not just the firm stares and stern warnings. Let's make it to class, my son. It's also the dad jokes. (laughs) They just make funny jokes like, oh, hey, your suit is untied, but it's really not untied. (laughs) They hate it. They're so embarrassed by it. (laughs) And it's that perfect mix of tough love and gentle ribbing that dads do so well that has helped transform this school. The school has really just been, like, happy, and you can feel it. Which is why the dads plan to keep coming to Southwood indefinitely. Because not everybody has the father figure figure at home. Or a male, period, in their life. So just to be here makes a big difference. There's a difference. There's a difference between... Um, men and women. And each one of them brings something very unique to the circumstances and the situations. If we were to delve deeper into Genesis, we would see that even in the fall of mankind, um, that there's a different, and we won't take time for this today, but there's a different um, uh, price to be paid for each one. Uh, in, In Eve, it has to do with relationship, and in her relationship to her husband. And Adam has to do very much with his sense of responsibility for the overall creation, and he pays another deeper price even for that because he's held to a greater level of responsibility. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but 
the differences are unique. And yet today, there's increasing confusion about this. Um, one study said that the ideal late 19th century man was compassionate, a caretaker. But a lot of these qualities got lost as paid labor moved from homes to factories as the industrialization process began. And here's an interesting thing. The Boy Scouts, in fact, whose creed was to be loyal, friendly, courteous, and kind, was founded in 1910 in part to counter that dehumanizing trend. Um, in other words, men were, were caring, compassionate, were protectors, providers, but the industrialization and shift from the homes changed a lot of that, and men became a, a different type of thing, and so the Boy Scouts tried to reinstill those things. I think it's very interesting today to see the path that the Boy Scouts have said today, have followed today, that has made them highly irrelevant uh, anymore to the conversation. Um, one of the things in this study that was being done uh, by Peggy Orenstein, the miseducation of the American boy, that um, a lot of parents were unsure how to raise a boy today and uh, learn from talking with boys themselves, she said, the culture of adolescence, which fuses hyper-rationality with domination, sexual conquest, and the glorification of male violence that fills the void. That is not what it means to be a man. If we get into Scripture, we do find some interesting things. In Genesis chapter 2.15, as we said, the Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden. So Adam was created not in a civilized setting of a garden, it's been argued. It's been argued that he was created in the wild, and that there's kind of a wild, uncivilized aspect to him. I'm always intrigued by the studies that were done in 1849, as the, 18, as the 49ers, not the, the San Francisco 49ers, the original ones that they take their name from, as they flooded out west into California to seek out gold, California quickly became the most violent um, place on uh, the continent. But then as women came out, either brought out as male order brides or began to come out on their own, and the men began to marry and settle down, that the crime rate dropped dramatically. And we've seen this across all cultures. Uh, China is in part viewed to be being very aggressive right now because their policy of one child, which would generally in their selective abortion, which eliminated a lot of women out of it, have provided an unbalanced culture where there's not enough women to, for the men. And it was predicted over 20 years ago that with that policy, you would see an increasingly aggressive China as those things come out in that way. And we're seeing that a bit today. And so it's cross-cultural. There's something about men that, yes, is a little bit wild, a little bit intense, a little bit strong, a little bit of a warrior, a little bit of a fighter, and women bring some degree of civilization to that. At least they try to, um, to the best that they're able to. There's something different about fathers, as there's something different about mothers. There was a study that was done uh, by Anna Manchin. She is an evolutionary anthropologist from the University of Oxford, not a Christian by any stretch says this in her, in her study, dads are designed to be different. In this one study, she said there's a unique and important role. For starters, she says fathers are designed to relate to their children through what she calls highly physical play, with lots of throwing up in the air, jumping about, and tickling, accompanied by loud shouts and laughter. Again, this is not typical for everyone, but a significant portion of men. Fathers also cuddle, she said, but this fatherly play of tossing around and stuff has two benefits. First, its exuberant nature allows dads to build a bond with their, with their children quickly using hits of neurochemicals required for a robust bond. Second, due to the riskiness of the play, it begins to teach the children about the give and take of relationships. Even from a very young age, fathers are teaching their children crucial life lessons. 
Why do kids need this dad rough and tumble play and not just a good cuddle? Matchin says this, because, quote, analysis has shown that fathers and children get their peaks in oxytocin, toxin, um, indicating increased reward from playing together. The corresponding peak for mothers and babies is when they're being affectionate. In contrast, a father's attachment to his child has elements of affection and care, but is based on challenge. A father turns his faces, children's faces outward, encouraging them to build relationships, succeed in the world, developing a child's sense of worth. And so, you know, she goes into this whole thing of, of what it is. There's unique things in regards to fathers and how they relate and how we engage with our children. When we go to Scripture, we find Job chapter 40, verse 7, and the phrase now, gird up your loins like a man. And I'll ask you, and you instruct me. And you, you've heard that phrase, be a man. Act like a man. Here, God's even saying, be a man. And other translations say, translate that as be strong. One of the primary things that we think of in, in the men, because as a general rule, most men are stronger than most women. That doesn't mean that some of us can't be, you know, beaten by our sisters, uh, depending on the time and the place. And that's another subject that we'll not discuss here at this point in time. <laughs> or more likely the other direction too often as guys get overpowering that way. But there's something about the strength um, of a man that even God is calling out and saying, look at, stand up, take responsibility. In the garden when the fall happens, even though Eve is the channel through that, um, Adam is held responsible there are some that theorize it's because Adam was the one that had been told by God what the case was, and that he may not have improperly influenced or communicated that to Eve. Either way, regardless of what that case was, he's held to a greater responsibility. All of creation is brought under a curse. And so there's something about being a man that means about accepting responsibility. It means to be strong. It can mean to provide. Again, not everything falls within. There can be a little spread beyond this. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it's specific. And while this one is general, again, and anything we see about this can be applied to women as well, here it is again specific, saying, he has told you, O man, what is good? He's speaking to a man at this. Now, this applies to men and women. But he's speaking to a man, said, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. That men, as men, we should care about justice. We should care about whether things are done right or wrong. There was an element within my family that got misapplied, I'll be honest, as I was growing up. And, and in a desire to treat everyone the same, whatever happened, a lot of times there wasn't a resolution of what actually took place. It was the idea just we're all treated the same. Which is very frustrating for those of us who achieve much higher than our siblings in so many different ways, and we're not recognized for that. <laughs> or in a case of injustice, where a sibling, you know, actually had done what was right and I had done what was wrong but were treated the same. At that point in time, the parenting was good. Okay? But what it would have been a better situation on either of those cases would have been to really seek out as best you can the issue of justice and sort that out. So that the party that had done uh, wrong was addressed and the party that had done right um, was encouraged. We're required to do justice, and this is hard, as men or as women, to sort out what that is. 
And so oftentimes, men in the household, we can throw our hands up and just say, yeah, you, you figure it out, or you guys sort out, or let her, or I don't care, just everyone, I'm going to beat up all of you guys, okay, whatever the case is. But we're required to do justice, to make inquiry, to do the hard work of digging deep and figuring things out. A lot of times the stereotypical idea of a man then is just that. We do justice and we're strong and we're powerful and we do all these things. But it says love kindness. Oh no, that's a weak thing. No, it's not. We're told to love kindness. As men, we're supposed to love it, not just be it. There's something about being kind, whether it's to a spouse or a child, a coworker whatever the case is, that we're supposed to actually love that. And then this last one is antithetical increasingly to what it means to be a man in our society, especially in sports. You don't walk humbly. You boast. You rap. You point all the things out. How great and how wonderful and how much more I can beat you up and all the rest of that stuff. But the scripture says walk humbly. Oh no, no, no. It says walk humbly with your God. I don't, I don't boast to God. Just all my buddies. No. It means walk humbly. Specifically with God. But there's supposed to be a humility a biblical perspective of manhood is not dominating, it's not controlling, it's not overpowering. It's to be one who seeks justice. It's one who actually loves and practices kindness. And it's one who walks actually in humility. That's what it means to be a man from a biblical worldview. Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17 goes further. It's not just with God we're supposed to walk, but with one another, with other men. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Too oftentimes as men, we stand isolated. There was actually a, a documentary, The Mask You Live In. This was done in 2015. It had this school teacher that gave a group of high school boys a circular piece of paper. And then on one side they were to write what their image is, what they project, and on the other side, how they actually feel. Then they're supposed to crumple it up and toss it to another one of the kids in the group. And here's how the researcher, Dr. Philip Zambardo, summarized the boys' messages. So take the piece of paper, write, here's how I project everyone, what my image is. Here's how I actually feel. Let's exchange them. What they said was all the same. On the outside it said, tough, fearless, kick your, excuse me, kick your ass. On the inside, lonely, Sad, got no friends. Each boy was stunned that the others felt the same way. As men, we can often stay isolated from other men. We think they've got somehow something going on that we don't. Or we fear the idea of the vulnerability of letting that guard down and see how we actually feel and where we're actually at. After all, real men stand alone. We, 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 we do things by ourselves. We're... Real men walk with God in humility. They practice kindness. They seek justice. But they also walk with other men. One of the reasons we started the garage, granted, it has a stereotypical baseline maybe, but trust me, the guys who are leading that, Dwight and other ones, are very much aware that, that, that there's not a stereotype when it comes to men. And whoever you are, you can be a part of that and should be a part of that. It's an opportunity to form relationships, encourage one another, and not be isolated you weren't meant to be that way. That's why God provided women, but also other men in the Christian faith. Now there's other phrases we can see in the scripture. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, 14, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. And again, that statement, be strong. But then it says, let everything you do be done in love. How do I do that? I'm supposed to be strong, but I'm supposed to be loving. You can do both. 
when properly applied. We're fighters, we know, but in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, it says the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Those men, I don't know if they're Christians or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. They're walking those halls, and they're not punching kids out. They'd be kicked out if they were. They're walking in, in an authority in their maleness, and there's something spiritually, whether they're Christians or not, that's happening in that moment of time. 1 John 3.16 says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Men, we are supposed to be the leaders in the home. But that doesn't mean a controlling, dominating leader. I've likened it to going through the doorway together with your wife or your family or something else. And yeah, you're, you're the leader. And that means you sit here and say after you, you go first. A good leader, anyone knows, takes care of their troops, takes care of their people. If you're not doing that, you're not a leader. You're a dictator. You're a tyrant. You're supposed to be laying down lives in the same way that Christ gave us that example. There's also something about adversity, though. And while women rise to this as well, too, there's something unique in how a man rises to this. Andrew Jackson, one of our presidents, who had a number of bad faults, but there were one or two traits that he had that were good. He was a tough guy and a strong leader. At one point in the defense of New Orleans, he marched 2,000 Tennessee uh, volunteers from Nashville to New Orleans. That whole distance they marched in order to enter into that battle and win that fight. Jackson made this statement, though, that I kind of resonate with. He says, I was born for the storm, and the calm does not suit me. When the sea is calm, anyone can captain the ship in that situation. But when a perfect storm threatens to capsize whatever's taking place, and that's going to be your marriage, the dreams you had, your career, whatever the case is, you need to play the man, he says, and step up. A true man doesn't step back, but steps in. He fights the good fight, even when it all seems lost that you stay in and you finish what you started on it. There's other passages that we could discuss from, from King David, one of the quintessential men of all time, who failed but also fought hard for God. And as he's about to die, he says to his son, I'm about to go the way of all earth. So be strong, he says to Solomon. Act like a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Man, we need to lean into, and if you're going to be a leader in your home, are you, are you conversant with the scriptures? Are you looking at the things so that you can have a spiritual... I've got to tell you, there's nothing sexier than a, 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 a truly God-honoring man to a woman. That she can see that he's in authority, that he's pressing into God, that he has someone who's over him, who's guiding him in the conversation. Goes on in 1 Corinthians 6.13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, guys. 1 Timothy, Paul's advising his son in the faith. Timothy, in 6, verse, chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We're all designed to fight, but how we fight is what matters. And not all the fights are stereotypical. We're called to be protectors. In my household, if I'm out of the house and it's at night, my wife locks the door. Now, when I'm in the house, she never locks the door. Why? Because I'm there. 
I guess. What's really frustrating is sometimes I'll go for a workout and I'll come back in and I go and I'm, I'm tired, I'm wiped out, I'm ready to reach the door and it's locked. And oh, that makes me upset. But I know that it's because I'm not there. There are different ways that we express who we are. And I'll say this one other thing now about women at this time. One of the phrases when women were created to be a helper suitable, a like opposite, there's been a lot of discussion on what that phrase is. And one uh, commentator has kind of teased it out to be this, that basically the statement is to a woman from me, my strength to your weakness, but my weakness to your strength. That there's something about the differences about, a men, and, about men and women the weakness that a woman has that a man meets, the strength that a woman has. We talked a lot about the strength of men. We haven't even begun to talk about the strength of women. It's mind-blowing, okay? But the strength of a woman that brings that to the weakness of the man and balances that out. And this doesn't mean everyone has to be married. Some of us are committed to singleness for our whole lives. But we can have friendships and relationships and siblings or parents or other family that can, can be a part of that. Now, as we conclude this a bit today, I want to kind of take you to one specific point because while we've talked about the strength of men, we've talked about all as part of that, some of that strength is, is often exemplified in a different way than the stereotypical fashion. Some of you may have seen the movie. If you haven't, um, let me give you a quick snapshot. But there was a movie called Hacksaw Ridge. And um, it's the true story of Private Desmond Doss. And he won the Congressional Medal of Honor despite the fact that he refused to carry a weapon or fire a weapon in World War II on religious grounds. He was a Christian who wouldn't touch a weapon, nor would he work on the Sabbath. And he enlisted in the Army as a combat medic because he believed in the cause but had vowed not to kill. And the Army wanted nothing to do with him. Um, His fellow soldiers considered him a pest, questioned his sincerity, and threw shoes at him while he prayed. Doss's commanding officer, Captain Jack Glover, tried to get him transferred. This is all true. In a documentary based on Doss's life, Glover says Doss told him, don't ever doubt my courage because I will be right by your side saving life while you take life. And then in Okinawa, in the spring of 1945, Doss's company faced a grueling task, climb a steep, jagged cliff, sometimes called Hacksaw Ridge, to a plateau where thousands of heavily armed Japanese soldiers were waiting for him. The terrain was treacherous. Under a barrage of gunfire and explosions, Doss crawled on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier. He dragged severely injured men to the edge of the ridge, tied a rope around their bodies, and lowered them down to the other medics below. And in the documentary, Doss says, I was praying the whole time. I just kept praying, Lord, help me. Please help me get one more. Veteran Carl Bentley, who was also at Hacksaw Ridge, once said, it's as if God has his, had his hand on Doss's shoulder. It's the only explanation I can give. Private Desmond, Desmond or Demond T. Doss saved, Desmond uh, Doss saved 75 men, including his captain, Jack Glover, over a 12-hour period of time under heavy enemy fire the whole time. The same soldiers who had shamed him as not being the stereotypical, you know, aggressive killing man, now praised him. Quote, he was one of the bravest persons alive. Glover, his captain says in the documentary. And then to have him end up saving my life? 
was the irony of the whole thing, he says. That has special meaning to me. You see, my father fought and was wounded in Okinawa, in the army. I don't know, and I doubt that it was at Hacksaw Ridge. And my father is one of the strongest men I've known. He was a strong man in the faith. He could also be kind and tender. And I learned from him certain traits. I was blessed that way. Many of our young men today aren't. And it would be really significant if more men within this church could step up to fill that role. A couple of weeks from now, a little ways from now, we're going to have another three-part segment of this series that's going to be entitled Generations. And I want to be very specific and talk to the younger generation, to those who are parents, and to those who are grandparents. Three separate conversations. But part of that, we want a time around, a period of time, when adults can come alongside all our young people, male and female, in a specific program we have planned. So I'm just going to drop that in your brain. But what I want to show with the story here today is that, that there is a, a, a spread within what it means to be a man. You don't have to be that stereotypical person. It does mean strong. It does mean faithful. It does mean all those things. But sometimes it takes a greater strength to not carry a weapon, to not fight in the more obvious fashions, to stand in the way that God would instruct you to follow. At the end of the day, though, there are only two genders There are men. And what it means to be human, unless you're going to accept an evolutionary randomness, is to be created by a human being who made you to be a man. And maybe you don't see yourself as a stereotypical man. That's fine. Neither do I. This doesn't change you from being a man. And you can find that identity in Christ and in the Scripture. And you don't have to go looking elsewhere for that. Next week we'll talk about what it means to be a woman because I'm such an expert on that area. Okay. I want to finish this today in this way. There'll be those afterwards for prayer up front here if you want prayer. But the team's going to play a song here because there's something else. In the Westminster Confession, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? Now, it means all of mankind, male and female, but for today, Let's at least put it for the men. What is the chief end of man? And it, it basically says and answers it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to be with him for eternity. But the chief end, to be a man, biblical worldview, means that you glorify God, that you honor God, that you pursue him, that you seek that justice under him, that you act kindly that you walk humbly with him, but that you pursue God. You want to be a real man? Real men pursue God. Learn from him what it means to be a man. Not from the sick culture that surrounds us or even the Christian subculture that's so permeated with things. To be a man is someone created in the image of God. To be a man is someone who pursues God. Who looks to his heavenly father. Who learns, even as we're supposed to in the flesh, learn from our earthly fathers and so often we do not.
but it's to learn from Heavenly Father just what it means to be a man. And for each man, it is unique. There are some common traits, but the ultimate expression of that is unique to you as a man. Just realize you weren't meant to do that alone. So Father, as we come before you today and as we try to unravel the confusion that surrounds this topic and our world, I pray right now for the men of this church. I ask, Lord, that you'd establish them in their masculinity. That you would um, help them to deal with the insecurities and things that isolate. That issues of self-control or anger or, or mismanagement of their leadership, God, that you would correct that. That as the men of this church pursue you, that we would all become more of what you intended us to be and a blessing to those we encounter and not a curse. So Lord, today we lift up the men of this church. We ask for wisdom and understanding that we would know you better. We'll just start with these first thousand names. But as we go along, that we would know you better. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.